are going to look at the proof of design with our study in apologetics tonight. So, proof of design. And I'm excited to go after these, these dear brothers and the work that they're doing in Egypt with the fact that they are setting truth in, in Egypt and in the Middle East. And that's what we're talking about tonight is truth. And before service, I was talking to the brothers about the fact that, that truth is slipping away um, in many parts of our culture. Just thinking, the Lord has set apart truth for us and to be custodians of the truth. Amen? This is truth. Nowadays, people have a hard time thinking. Thinking on uh, what is truth and what is true. And that's really what this study of apologetics is about, is giving a reason and using truth and thinking through truth. Right? So, as a reminder, uh, we're looking at at, um, the reason of the hope. So, obviously, 1 Peter 3.15 that was read uh, earlier um, really... Apologetics is given a reason for your position on God, the Bible, creation, Christ, and faith, or um, other religious positions. And so it is laying forth truth. Evangelism is taking that and helping somebody come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. So they are related, but not the same thing. So tonight we're going to be looking at the proof of design. And it's, it's very important to, to understand that um, we need to... Well, the way that God has designed this, uh, don't, don't you know that if God wanted to, he could have just downloaded all the truth in our head, right? He could have done it that way. But he said, no, I want you to read it and to study it. That's how he set it up. And he said, I want my people to be thinkers. And again, that's a lost art today. People don't want to think. They want to look it up. They want somebody to tell them, but they don't want to have to think about it. But what God has told us is, you, my people, need to study to show yourself approved, and you need to be thinkers. And so, tonight we're going to think through design, and there's some things that will, as as uh, Pastor Randy has said, to twist our minds a little bit as, as we get into some of these proofs. So... As we look at, and keep me honest with this thing, I am horrible at advancing the slides, so if um, if I fall back on this, please just let me know that, that I need to move forward. So, uh, we've looked at, uh, of course, the introduction, uh, why do we believe anything? So, looking at belief in general, we've looked at truth, uh, knowledge, and faith, the proof of cause, that was a deep one. Uh, the proof from creation, so that was the last time that Randy spoke, and then tonight is the proof from design. So, with the proof of design, it's really um, looking at, if you study logic, um, especially deduction, um, as we look at design, it's really a syllogism. A syllogism is basically three statements, if A and B, then C. That's a syllogism. A syllogism. So behind every complex design is a designer. 
the universe has a complex design, so therefore the universe has a designer. And so tonight we're going to look at that creation defined, and so uh, a little bit of a segue from last week. So creation, and this you have a blank there with, with being, but to create is to give being to something new. And, and God lays it out right in the beginning with Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Very simple statement, but that's, that's where it all began. And that's where we're, we're going to take uh, root from in looking at design. So all that, it, that is had a beginning. Now, what's interesting about this is today in our they call them higher institution of learning, but um, in our higher institution of learning, they don't understand that. This is this is foreign to many of them. But when you think about it, all that is had a beginning. You had a beginning, right? From from the time you were a baby. Um, trees, when we walk, they all have a beginning. But this has become uh, this is becoming a, a foreign thought. Uh, Romans 1.20, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. We can see that when we look at creation, when we walk out these doors, when we look at each other. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So everyone in the world does not have an excuse because of creation, because of what God has put in front of us. And is declaring every single minute of every day that there is a creator. There is a God. So, the second blank. It is all, it always has God as its subject. So, in the beginning, who? God. That's the subject. So, God is the subject. Acts 17.24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. So even though God made everything, this is not where he dwells, obviously. So it can include matter, life, and spirit. So we can look at Isaiah 42.5. Thus saith the Lord God, he that created the heavens, that's the matter, and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath, that's life, and unto the, unto the people upon it, and the spirit, so that's obviously the spirit, to them that worketh therein. So we see matter, the heavens, we see breath, that's life. When breath is gone, life is gone. And then, of course, the spirit. So we see those things. Now, in addition to that, and this is where we're getting a little bit deeper, there was no pre-existent substances by which other things were created. Now, again, this seems pretty simple. So um, it's, there's a Latin term used to describe this, ex nihilo, means out of nothing, right? Out of nothing. And when God created, time began. We know that. This is a story for us of when time began until 
time will end. That's what this book is about for us. And so God has cataloged it for us to have truth. At the beginning of creation, God, God is sovereign. So that's your next blank because he is creator and owner. So now we'll start to put these together. So we're convinced that the evidence for God is clearly found in the design of creation. So as I talked before, when we talk about design, that's not necessarily a biblical thought. We'll talk about that later, but it's just a logical deduction. Behind every complex design, which is the universe and everything in it, there's a designer. The universe is complex in its design, so therefore the universe has a designer. Who is that designer? Well, if you talk with some scientists, they they will go with you there on that. What they won't do is say the designer was God. So we are um, convinced that the evidence for God is clearly found in the design of creation in the universe and that creation exhibits the marks of intelligence and design, that is, of our God. And so we see this in Scripture. The Lord said, I have made the earth and created man upon it. Even my hands have stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts have I commanded. I've had people tell me before, well, it doesn't say anywhere in the Bible that God created this. I'm said, you haven't read the Bible, have you? And I'm, I, I take them to a number of places because all throughout the Bible, God says, I'm the one who made it. In Hebrews 11.3, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. So it came from God. It, it came from that which doesn't appear in front of us. Uh, of course, we, we read before uh, Romans 1.20 that clearly shows that even creation is giving testimony to God who made uh, those things in this earth. So, there are four objections to creation, usually, and one is a, a, an appeal to uh, self-creation. So, we have uh, Stephen Hawking is a huge name, if you've, if you've heard that name, but has written a lot. He's considered to be uh, very intelligent, And the thing is that God wants us to be thinkers. It's not about being intelligent. It's about being wise. And if we have truth and we understand that truth and when we apply that truth, God has said, I I will make you wise. That's the issue. It's not about your level of intelligence. Some people go, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not that smart. Well, if you put this in your mind, you could be wise. I don't care if of what IQ somebody says you have, God will make you wise. And you can think through these. You just have to apply it in your life and put it in your life. But there are those who who scientists and atheists and others uphold, and one is Stephen Hawking. And he says, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe But if the answer is God, then the question has merely been deflected to that of who created God. So that's a cop-out. He says, well, but then who created God? 
We claim, however, that this is po- it is possible to answer these questions purely within the realm of science without invoking any divine beings. So he, he doesn't want to bring in God to this equation. Uh, so many times, you know, I, I, I've heard people who are atheists and they say, there is no God, and I'm mad at him. Excuse me? How can you be mad at someone who's not there? An appeal to self-creation. So, um, you know, are, are these things nothing? Okay, so, and those are um, on here. I'm bringing them up. So we have particles and matter and energy. Um, we have motion, space, gravity. Those are things that that God has made. Um, Aristotle said, nothing is what rocks dream about, (laughs) Um, as a quote. Another appeal of self-creation, a thing cannot be ontologically or, or to exist prior to itself. To create yourself, you must have existed prior to, prior to yourself. Okay? Um, find my place in my notes. Some causes that can't exist before time. And this is a little different than, uh, than the PowerPoint that I had. So this is a little bit of this is new to me. So many people do not like the idea that time has a beginning because it smacks of divine intervention. And, and Stephen Hawking is, is one of these and, and leads many. Um, because if, if God comes into the equation, that's when they get mad. You, you see their, their countenance literally change when you bring God into the equation. Um, they're, they're happy many times to talk about design. But when you bring the Bible... Jesus or God into the equation, that's when you see um, anger happen. Can we uh, get sound on this? I'll go back and... And in the case of creation, I would say the universe comes into being at T equals zero, and that is the same moment at which God causes the universe to come into being. Pretty sure nobody cares about my opinion about God's atemporality, so I will use this as an excuse uh, to reiterate my objection to the language of coming into existence or popping into existence. That is not what the universe does, even in models where the universe has a beginning, a first moment, because the, ne- the verb popping, the verb to pop, uh, has a temporal um, connotation is the word I'm looking for. It sounds as if you waited a while and then pop, there was the universe. But that's exactly wrong. There, the correct statement is that there are models that are complete and consistent in which there's a first moment of time. That is not the same as to say that there was some process by which the universe popped into being. That's yet another difference between the universe and things inside the universe. Universe is just popping into existence. Does cosmology have anything to say about where God might have come from, or are we allowed to think that he could have popped into existence? No, obviously cosmology would not have anything to say about where God came from, because God is a non-physical, transcendent entity beyond the universe. 
Um, that's why I use the word transcendent in that argument. This is something that is beyond the universe. The universe is defined as all contiguous physical reality. But I do want to take this opportunity to highlight for you a very significant difference between Sean and myself that is a philosophical difference that has tremendous impact upon this whole debate, and that has to do with this idea of popping into existence. If I'm not mistaken, Dr. Carroll holds to what is called a tenseless theory of time. That is to say, past, present, and future events are all equally real. Temporal becoming is merely a subjective illusion of human consciousness. There is nothing privileged about the present, ontologically speaking. I hold to quite a different view of time. I think that um, temporal becoming is a real and objective feature of the universe. The future doesn't in any sense exist. Things really do come into being and go out of being. And that's why I use the language of popping into existence, not because I illicitly presuppose a a time prior to the origin of the universe, but because I believe in a tensed theory of time which affirms the objectivity of temporal becoming. And on that view, the beginning of the universe does not just tenselessly exist. The universe comes into being, and surely that requires a cause. Now, this is not just an unfounded metaphysical assumption on my part. I've written two books on this in which I defend the tensed theory of time, uh, giving arguments for it and answering objections against it, and then I attack the tenseless theory of time, giving arguments against it and answering the arguments for it. But this is a huge metaphysical time. assumption that underlies this debate and divides us. Did you get all that? <laughs> um, so what's really interesting when when scientists or others who don't want to discuss creation, when you talk to them about the universe, their cop-out is to go, well, where did God come from? They don't want to answer about creation, so they go to that. Now, no one can answer the question of where did God come from. God always was and always will be. But they want to go down that rabbit hole to try to push to a smokescreen. It doesn't answer the question of dealing with the creation that we have here. So many times they'll want to push it there as a smokescreen. So and when we look at design, design is a logical inference. So it's, it's a duck deduction of thought that can be stated by evidence of what's called irreducible complexity. Basically, the, the complexity can only be reduced down to a certain amount. And that is something that scientists struggle with. Because what they want to presuppose is everything started from a blob and then worked up. That's not how God created things. God created us as humans. He created a butterfly as a butterfly. And it didn't become, over millions of years, a butterfly. And so this idea of irreducible irreducible complexity is this, that a single system, which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to a basic function, wherein the removable of any one of those parts causes the system to effectively cease in functioning. 
So if you take any part of that butterfly and pull it out, it will no longer be a butterfly. Butterfly. So um, random mutations may account for the development of a new part, but it cannot account for the concurrent development of multiple parts necessary for a functioning system. We're going to give some examples of that so you can see that, and a butterfly is one of those. Intelligent design, then, is an extension of, of this, this thought with irreducible complexity. Namely, certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by intelligent cause, not by undirected uh, process of natural selection. What Darwin said is you have natural selection that over time has created something. So when we look at intelligent design versus creationism or creation theory, they are two different things. Um, now, we can use intelligent design to show that the, the world, the universe, has a creator because it is so complex. And that's where we're going to dig a little bit deeper. But understand that intelligent design theory is not, is not, let's see, I'm trying to find. The blanks for this. And I don't, don't think we have it here. Okay. So, um, the central tenet of intelligent design is what is called this irreducible complexity, which states that a structure cannot function without all its components perfectly in place. So, in other words, it's impossible to reduce the complexity of um, an irreducible, irreducibly complex system by removing any of its components and parts and it still be able to function. Now, biblical creationists began with this conclu conclusion that the Bible account of creation is reliable and correct, right? If you're a believer, by faith, you're saying what the Word says is true, right? What the, what, what the Lord said is true, that, that life on earth was designed by an intelligent agent who is God? We start with that assumption, and then with Romans 1.20, we look at the world and we see evidence of that. We deduce from that. And then we recognize the evidence from the natural realm to support that conclusion. Now, intelligent design theorists begin with the natural realm and reach the conclusion that life on earth was designed by an intelligent agent, whoever that is. And they won't make that leap to God. Evolutionists hold tight to Richard Dawkins' theory of the blind watchmaker, meaning that there is only an appearance of design. Yes, I know it looks like there's a designer, but really there's not. That's what Rick, Richard Dawkins says. It, I, it really looks like it, but that's really not what's going on, and you just need to believe me. Well, that takes some faith, doesn't it? I'd rather put my faith in God than faith in, in knowing, well, it only looks like there's a designer. So such a structure can have evolved through gradual steps since it would not gain its function until all the pieces are together. You know, I, I think of a where they say, well, 
um, from the ocean came life, and then the life started to evolve on the earth. My question is, okay, if it can exist in the ocean, it has it has to um, have um, the capacity like a fish to breathe in the water. How did that automatically change to breathe on land? Did it go back and forth until, you know, over over time where it evolved into lungs? Well, that's ridiculous, right? So such a structure cannot have evolved through those gradual steps. Even Darwin knew this and declared that if such a structure were found to exist, it would disprove evolution itself. So um, I think Randy's trying to find the correct slides. So the correct slides are are not up there. Um, and so some examples of this are what's known as the icons of creation. We have 25 icons of creation that defy the evolutionary theory. And these icons demonstrate the complexity and design to dispute any hint of evolutionary change over long periods of time. The complexity demonstrated in each of these icons could not have been formed through any methods of evolution. No amount of mutation or change in DNA um, is explainable in these icons. No amount of migration or integration of multiple species on these icons. No possibility of genetic drift or highlighting particular characteristics. And natural selection is not possible. And so we have an example of the monarch butterfly. With the monarch butterfly, it's an amazing example of this of irreducible complexity. The monarch butterfly, um, its Latin name means sleepy transformation because the life cycle of the butterfly is a transformational process, right? Um, In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God has placed these things in creation not just for us to um, uh, to see uh, the wonder of creation alone. Now, it connotes uh, for us that there is a creator. But beyond that, God has said, I want you to see the spiritual truth of the fact that I am making new creations, i.e. born again and a believer in Christ. So we can see the spiritual truth in that creation. And God has placed this to not only defy when someone thinks that there is no creator, but beyond that, to teach us about the spiritual truth. Romans 12, 12, um, and be not conformed to this world, but be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The monarch butterfly is known as the king of butterflies because the amazing I, uh, the amazing characteristics within the butterfly. Evolutionists have no answer for the design of the butterfly or how flowers co-evolved with insects. So these butterflies, they need certain flowers to be able to exist. And so if, if these evolutionists are, are correct, that means not only did the butterfly evolve, but also the flowers of which it subsists, has to evolve too. And it just happened to do that. Well, that's absurd. 
How can an insect and a plant survive long enough to evolve together when they are dependent upon one another? The butterfly is used in the uh, in the process of um, just like bees, where um, um, pollen uh, is is used in the process with with those those flowers as well. It doesn't make logical sense. Natural selection and mutation cannot answer for the necessity between insect and plant. Which came first? How did they find each other? What factors drew them together? Those answers are not explained in evolution. And like all butterflies, the monarch life cycle is called metamorphosis. Okay, it's, it's a transformation. And by its very nature, metamorphosis is an all-or-nothing proposition. So, and we will explain this. Um, and Ray, did you have the the slides that have the butterfly in it? If, if you could look for that one. Um, so, its success is hinged upon the immediate availability of a full set of instructions, including genes and proteins and development uh, developmental program required to integrate them, and it all has to be in place ahead of time in order for all of this to work. So the word transformation or transformed in, in Romans 12.2 comes from the Greek word metamorpho, or to change from. And there are four stages of metamorphosis with a butterfly. It starts with the egg, okay, which contains instructions to construct the caterpillar. And it can only be laid on the leaves and stems of the milkweed plant. Only on those plants. And it also contains instructions for its rebirth, right? Which is showing us a truth of John 3, 3, right? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In First Peter uh, 123, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And so God is showing us about his truth to uh, redeem lost mankind. But then the next step is when this butterfly is larva or um, a caterpillar. What's really interesting about the caterpillar is it's an eating machine. It doubles its size every 12 hours to over 3,000 times larger than what it was in 20 days. Imagine that. Now, I felt like my boys, when they were eating all the time, grew like right in front of me, but not like this, okay? Um, my, my boys would have a pre-meal, they would have a meal, and then they'd have an after-meal, and they were still hungry. And they were just growing all the time. That's probably why they're all taller than me. But they didn't get 3,000 times larger, and in only 20 days. It's amazing. Um, it only eats the leaves and stems of the milkweed plant, which is a poisonous plant that is harmful to birds, frogs, and people. It only works with this butterfly. Doesn't it sound like God has designed this in a certain way? The poison is the defense system of the caterpillar, so it it uses that um, as its own protection system. It molts four or five times using a strain detector 
in the skin to signal the brain to begin to molt. On the last molt, it does not enlarge its skin. Instead, it attaches itself with a hook to the milkweed that is perfectly aligned for the milkweed. And it shoots the hook three times, embedding it in, uh, embedding it on the third try, and then it spins three times to secure to the, to the plant. And at that stage, it becomes a pupa or a chrysalis. And the shell hardens, and then a caterpillar dies. And the body literally turns to a soupy mix of goo with a few remaining cells that begin the process of rebirth. At that time, um, in, in a short amount of time, the shell cracks open and then out comes a butterfly, which is 100% different than when it started as a caterpillar. It looks nothing like that. An adult or full monarch butterfly um, is something that is completely different. The caterpillar no longer exists and there is nothing left that looked like the caterpillar anymore. The caterpillar had a mouth and simple eyes along with 16 legs. The butterfly uses um, a, a, a proboscis tube to draw nectar from flowers. It has six complex eyes that can see now in color and ultraviolet. The caterpillar only ate leaves. The caterpillar only held on to a leaf. But now a butterfly can fly. Something completely different. So the life of a butterfly is also amazing. It has a migration cycle. They winter in Mexico and migrate as far north as Canada. What is amazing about this when you study it is the generation that winters in Mexico leaves in the spring and lays eggs and then dies. The new generation moves further north breeding and dying, but it takes three to four generations to get all the way to Canada, and then they do that again. The Canadian generation departs from Mexico but lives months longer than the others and does not breed until it leaves Mexico the following year. And that generation of the cycle is called the Methuselah generation. They winter, uh, they, the winter location was not even found until 1975. So this is a miraculous process that God has designed in a way uh, in which scientists cannot explain how something is 100% caterpillar and then later, 100% butterfly. They can't explain how the flower and the monarch somehow evolved in coexistence. What makes more sense is that God created them and designed it exactly the way that it is. That's that irreducible complexity. We could also look at the living cell. And so with the living cell... Um, it's common when speaking of evolution to infer that life arose from a single cell to a human. And that's what scientists want your children to believe, is that you started, we, we started from a blob and then uh, evolved onto the earth and later became a monkey and poof, later, millions of years later, you are now a human. But all we have to do is look at the cell to disprove this. So in reality, the complexity of the living cell is so great as to ren render random 
assembly as a mathematical impossibility. All plant life, animal tissues, and organs are composed of cells. And this began to be discovered in the 1830s, but man's knowledge of the cellular life has exploded since the latter half of the 20th century. We know so much more than we did before, and what it's doing is it's showing us that the Bible is true. The more we understand, even life in the womb, we understand more than we did before, and it's actually proving the Bible, not disproving the Bible. So a typical cell contains more than a a trillion parts at the atomic level, a trillion parts in one cell. There are 200 major types of cell in the human body, and each one contains the complete DNA needed to create the entire body, and there are about 60 trillion cells in your body. The function of the proteins and their action are controlled by the DNA in your cells that God put in there, the design for you. And the cells also require enzymes which facilitate and speed up the chemical reactions to maintain life. The living cell is powered by um, adenosine triphosphate, or what's known as ATP, which is produced in the cell's mitochondria by an amazing genetic motor called the ATP synapse. So um, this ATP is considered by biologists to be the energy currency of life. And it has the high energy molecule that stores the energy we need to do just about everything that we do. So the point is that God has made a miraculous design even within your cells. And there are so many cells. Your body is not a simple um, a, a, a simple uh, fact of evolution It is a complex system that God has designed. More complex than your computer, than your cell phone, all of those things. Um, It's much, much more complex. Even the human eye is amazing. The eye's retina is less than one square inch in surface area, but it contains, get this, 137 million light-sensitive receptor cells. Those 100, it also has 130 million rod cells or black and white cells and 7 million cone cells or color cells. The eye has a dynamic range of 10 billion to 1, meaning it will detect one photon of light. The high quality of a photographic film is only about 1,000 to 1. But with your eye, it's 10 billion to 1. A DLSR camera is about 2,000 to 1. But again, your eye is 10 billion to 1. A healthy eye can see the light of a candle 25 miles away. So the eye demonstrates tremendous complexity. It is not a simple thing. And that's that's what evolution depends upon for us to understand that it's very simple. But the more we understand about the body, the more we understand about creation, it is an, an incredibly complex system that God has designed. Your body, creation. The retina does about 10 million calculations of pre-processing before an image is sent to the brain. 10 million calculations before 
that image that you are seeing gets sent to your brain for processing. The retina is probably the most complicated tissue in the whole body. Millions of nerve cells interconnect in a fantastic number of ways to form a miniature brain that's in your eye. In fact, the optic nerve can handle 1.5 million simultaneous messages. When you look at something and you're not realizing that all of that is going on, the eye is self-cleaning and self-maintaining. They produce three types of tears, basal for lubrication, reflex for flushing foreign matter out, and emotional tears that produce a pain reliever. All that happens. The idea of the eye evolved is simply not tenable. It does not make sense. Darwin claims the eye developed through plausible intermediary steps, that it took time to evolve into what it is. Richard Dawkins has challenged that the first eye was a simple light-sensitive or sensitive spot but that, too, is incredibly complex, conflicting with the principles that he purports. So from proteins and enzymes to function and, and move light information, there is also a need to control the cup shape of the eye. And that's where people's um, eyesight goes bad. When the shape of the eye um, distorts, that's when we have problems seeing. Eyes in the fossil record have shown immense complexity, um, conflicting what's known um, in evolutionary process as well. So we, we've gone from the butterfly to cells to your eye. But even blood itself in our body is, is quite amazing. Consider blood that is vital for you and me. So blood clotting and red blood cells. Now, again, these, there are principles that God wants us to know. Um, in Genesis 9, 4, it's, uh, the Lord says, But flesh with life thereof, which is the blood thereof, ye shall not eat. God says it's sacred. The life is in the blood. Blood is the way uh, that the body breathes and cleans itself. Now, we know that it's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that saved our souls, right? That that it's because of, of his precious sacrifice and his blood. And, and what the Lord wants us to understand is blood is an amazing thing. And from that, we can learn not only about creation, but about spiritual truth. So some, some of the facts about blood, which is, is quite amazing. Um, it's the way that we receive, obviously, spiritual life and cleansing but blood is the way that the body breathes and cleanses itself. The circulatory system is another amazing marvel of God. Um, the circulatory system of the human body is, is very unique. The primary purpose is to transport oxygen from lungs to various tissues in the human body, as well as removing waste product from the cells of those tissues. It has about 60,000 miles of vessels made up of, of arteries and veins and, and capillaries. 60,000 miles in your body of, of those, um, the, those veins and those systems that you have. An average adult has about five to six quarts of blood. And the system regulates the body temperature, the pH level, 
and transport oxygen and CO2. So it's, it's like a, a city in your body happening right, right now as you're sitting there. The blood is a medium of transportation and consists of several parts. Plasma, which is mostly made up of water and that carries the nutrients and the hormones and the clotting proteins as well as waste products um, within that plasma. Red blood cells are disc-shaped uh, cells that carry oxygen and carbon dioxide. Platelets are small disc-shaped blood fragments uh, produced in your, your bone marrow. And then white blood cells have five different types of differing uh, functions. Immune systems. They are destroyers of microorganisms. They, um, the two remaining are undetermined, possibly allergic responses. Okay, but we know there, there are about uh, five of differing functions. Red blood cells are formed within the blood marrow, and there are about 25 trillion red blood cells in your body right now. The red blood cells live about 120 days and then are destroyed um, in the spleen. The red blood cells are replaced at a rate of 2.5 million per second. The hemoglobin molecule gives its red color and is what's, what allows it to be, carry oxygen due to the protein that contains iron, and that's why your blood is red because of the iron. Um, the iron um, in the red, uh, red cells is used within our liver. The hemoglobin from the red cell is converted into pigment and used in the human bile produced in the liver as well. Now, this blood clotting, blood clotting is a wonderful biological system that could not have evolved. What part of that could have, um, could have been the first step? We need all of it together for a body to work in harmony. So the, the clotting mechanism is necessary for survival of animals and humans, right? If your blood doesn't clot, what happens? You die. Right, the the blood circulate uh, circulation system is pressurized, and a simple cut or wound would prove fatal if the bleeding were not stopped, as we said. So, um, now we do have a, a blank. So under D, and I'm sorry about the slides here, um, but under D you have um, Roman numeral four. And then under D, blood clotting is a wonderful biological system that could have not evolved. Um, under three, clotting is referred as a cascade. That's your blank. A system where one component activates another component. Do you not have that one? Okay. Um, okay. So clotting involves over 30 distinct individual uh, reactions. So... Each are vital to heal a wound and are each um, exceedingly complex. Omitting even one of those reactions or altering the timing of a step would result in death. And so that clotting is is so very important. So my guess is the other blanks that I have here are not in your notes. So um, I apologize for that. Um, Okay. So with that, we have just a few more minutes. God has made blood as a central to physical life and essential to spiritual life. So 
We, we know that um, there are so many truths, whether from, from Genesis, uh, talking about um, Abel, to Leviticus, to God's design with sacrifices at his temple, um, to the Lord Jesus Christ in the sacrifice that he's made and our redemption and how we are washed by him. Blood is, is a part of that process. And so we are cleansed uh, through that. Um, in addition, and the last, the last um, marvel I'm going to talk about is the giraffe, uh, my father-in-law's favorite animal. Um, he loves giraffes. But if you consider the giraffe, um, it's the world's tallest animal. The average height is 18 feet, and the average weight is 3,000 pounds. It can run 35 miles an hour. But the, the giraffe has a supposed problem. It's so tall that it presents an issue for it. The giraffe's heart has a, has a task of pumping blood at a high enough pressure so that it can flow all the way to the giraffe's brain, 18 feet up. It can weigh, um, the heart can weigh 22 pounds and generate twice the blood pressure of other large mammals. Having enough blood pressure to pump blood to the brain when the giraffe's neck is extended upward is a challenge. But when the animal lowers its, its head, it's, it risks injury due to excessive pressure. Have you ever had it when if you bend over too much, you get dizzy? Okay, you're not 18 feet tall. Imagine what would happen with a giraffe. And the pressure that's going is is um, quite extreme because, again, it's trying to pump all the way um, 18 feet up. So to counter this, what God has done for the giraffe is amazing. Giraffes have a pressure regu- regula- uh, regulatory system, regulating system, known as the um, rete um, marabil. And this process this system restricts the amount of blood that rushes towards the brain when the giraffe lowers its head so it automatically adjusts for that giraffe and built exclusively for that giraffe so that it can lower its head god's creation is a marvel literally this this mechanism acts as a sponge or a capacitor like electric circuit And when it's time to bend over to drink, the giraffe needs a safety net to keep the blood from rushing to the brain. And that net is that rete marabil, which is Latin for wonderful net. And it's made up of arteries and veins that equalize the pressure. God designed it this way. And God has designed this pressure regulation system to protect the giraffe so... um, that it is instantaneously responsive. So the giraffe doesn't have to push a button to make this happen. All it needs to do is bend over, and God has it has uh, set this up to work perfectly. The neck is used to reach the um, acacia tree um, and leaves and to dip low to drink water. So very high and very low. And when the head is is up, the pressure regulation is open. When the head is down, the Pressure regulation feel, fills the rete marabil, and as soon as the head is lifted up, then it releases the blood automatically for the giraffe. 
So doing this allows the blood pressure to remain constant in the brain for this giraffe. So these are things that scientists can't explain. How did this happen? It could not have happened in parts because it's so integral to the life of a giraffe and part of a system that's very complex that it could not have evolved this way. It The giraffe had to have been created this way. The same for the butterfly, the same for blood in your body, the same for clotting. They cannot explain this. And all of this is designed to really bug evolutionists, to consider all of these different things. I don't have time to go into the bombardier beetle, a beetle that that really produces um, a, a substance in its body that can produce steaming hot um, substance that it can spray on others as as a protection that's 212 degrees when it sprays out. And it's a reaction that happens in that beetle's body. And this is how God has, has designed it. So design is a logical inference that can be stated by the evidence of irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity. And, and it's this idea and that is a single system which is composed of several well-matched interacting parts that contribute to the basic function wherein the removal of any one of those parts causes the system to effectively cease in functioning that is how god has created your body he has created many things most things in this world that bug evolutionists that they cannot explain Random mutation may account for the development of a new part, but it cannot account for the concurrent development of multiple parts necessary for existence. And we've learned that intelligent design is an extension of intelligent cause, namely certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by intelligent cause, not an undirected process of what... Um, Dawkins and Darwin called natural selection. So when we look at intelligent design versus creationism, yes, intelligent design is true. It takes to a certain point is that there, there must have been a designer. But beyond that, the designer we know from the word of God. And when we look and study creation, that designer is the Lord Jesus Christ. So intelligent design is not a theory of biblical creationism. Understand that, that that it is just logical deduction. But we must go beyond that and with faith believe what God has said in his word. So there's an important distinction between those two positions of intelligent design and creation. Biblical creationists begin with a conclusion that the Bible account of creation is reliable and correct, that life on earth was designed by an intelligent Agent. Who is that agent? God. And then we look at the evidence from the natural realm to support this conclusion. And that's what Romans 1.20 is all about. And intelligent design theorists begin with the natural realm and reach the conclusion that life on earth was designed by an intelligent agent, whoever that must be. So, you know, with these thoughts we can actually use science and study 
the observable truth of creation and see that that what God has said in His Word is true. It is complex. But the more that we study it, the more that we see He should be worshipped. He should be praised. And with that, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father,